In this podcast, we are chatting with the amazing Anna Fawcett. Anna is the current GM for uh, Marketing, Brand and Communications at Christchurch NZ. Uh, and she has this long history of place marketing, place branding, attraction marketing, trying to find ways to get people to come to various places and spaces and have an amazing time in those places and spaces. So as the new GM in North Tahi Christchurch is part of that team that is trying to drive our future forward and attract people to the city to make it a, a place to live, work, play, study uh, and visit, uh, this is something that's really, really important, but super, super complex. Trying to understand what makes a, a city uh, attractive to an outsider is, can be sometimes very different from what the heart is and the spirit and the soul is of those people who are currently living there already. So in this chat, we talk to Anna and we try to find out how best she navigates this complicated space. Hope you enjoy so kia ora tato. thanks for coming back. Uh, as you know, my name is Ekan Veer, and today I'm talking with the amazing Anna Fawcett. Anna is the General Manager of Marketing, Brand and Communications at Christchurch NZ, which is kind of like the marketing and economic recovery arm of the city for Otatahi Christchurch. Um, prior to coming to Otatahi, she led Wellington's Cuba Dupa. Is that Cuba Dupa? Cuba Dupa. Cuba yeah. Dupa and New Zealand Fringe Festivals. And in the UK, you were there for a while working in Edinburgh with, the, uh, with some festivals in Edinburgh and with uh, Visit Britain, but also the global head of marketing for Top Deck Travel. So when it comes to understanding how to attract people to a certain place and space, I think Anna's probably the most qualified person, I was going to say, in the Southern Hemisphere, just because I have no competition to compare it to. But You've been in the role now for about six months. Is that about right? Um, yes. Uh, thank you for that uh, lovely introduction. There. Um, it's, uh, I, I think it's almost closer to nine months Crazy. now. Actually, how yeah, fast it's gone. These lockdowns and various alert level changes have sort of warped my sense of time. But I think it's about nine or ten months. So tell us, tell us a bit more about yourself, then, Anna. What is the sort of thing not only has drawn you to this role as the GM in um, in uh, Christchurch and Z, but to marketing and place marketing in general? I mean, you 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 fuck uh, uh, fuck a puppet to New Zealand, but you've kind of travelled the world a bit. So tell us about yourself. Uh, yes, so um, it's quite a long story. I mean, I, uh, I'm a career marketer. I've always really been into marketing, but I think going into into destination and tourism and economic development. Um, I sort of uh, flipped my way in there, I suppose you could say, through the festivals and events route. Um, so, yeah, so I, I fuck up uh, back to um, uh, the Waikato, a little farm in the middle of Walton, uh, middle of nowhere, milked cows for a living until I was 18, you know, highly aspirational. Um, but my mother is German and spent a lot of time traveling as a child, um, which ultimately shaped you know, a lot of my future, you know, I'm half German, um, my name is Anna, and, you know, everyone calls me Anna because they think, I'm like, no, it's Anna, um, it's German. But basically, um, yeah, I was supposed to be an international sports star. That was always the, the path for me. I played high-level performance sport from a very, very young age. And then one day I was like, right, I'm getting into media, and everyone thought I was mad. Um, and that was about 15 years old, but I kept playing sports and then I was like, right, I just need to get away. And mm. so as soon as I turned 18, I just took off and went overseas and traveled the world, um, came back and started doing a BA, of, uh, BA in comms. And um, it was just so life-changing, all of these traveling experiences that I had. And um, I didn't realize at that point how important all of those life-changing travel experiences were actually gonna be for me. Um, but funnily enough, and I don't, I'm not really, I don't really believe in fate, but somehow this seems to have worked out. But my first ever marketing job, despite the fact that all I wanted to do was 
major events and arts and culture was actually a destination marketing job. I used to work at Tekapo Springs back when it was called Alpine Springs. Um, and then I was like, no, I want to go back into event management, went back to uni, did a postgrad in event management, um, and then got into festivals. And I cut my teeth on Laneway Festival. Basically, I rang up the uh, director of the festival, uh, so that was Mark Kneebone, and just said, hey, um, I'm this really amazing marketer slash event manager, I want to work for you, I will work for free, and I guarantee in three months you'll hire me. It's exactly what happened, and I ran the festival with him, well, I didn't run the festival, but I supported him running mm. the festival for years and then um, I just wanted bigger and better right so I um, oh well actually at the same time I was working um, at NECI the National Institute of Creative Arts and Industries at Auckland University so I was doing sort of like the arts and culture through there and I was doing the major events and the music through Laneway and it was all very lovely but I wanted bigger and better and so I left and went to Edinburgh Mm. just took off on a plane and was like I'll put my CV whatever thinking I'm going to work for the Fringe and um, ended up working for Festivals Edinburgh which was the um, a membership organisation for the 12 major festivals to do collective international marketing. And I had literally the coolest job in the world. My job was to, uh, I was the international media relations coordinator. I would pitch Edinburgh festivals to international media and then I would pay for them to come over and then I would escort them through the city creating bespoke itineraries based on their publication. It was the most incredible job in the world but that's where I finally got to really get my teeth into destination marketing. Hmm. Because whilst the festivals are one thing, obviously they they hugely contribute to um, uh, the destination of Edinburgh, which doubles, uh, the population doubles overnight during the festivals. Mm. And so, you know, here I was just somewhat on a fluke, I guess, promoting Edinburgh and Scotland throughout the world through my job, you know, working with Visit Scotland and um, ETAG, which is the Edinburgh tourism groups um, and the tour operators and all that sort of stuff. And then we did this big um, tour with, about eight or nine international journalists with Visit Britain. Hmm. And again, that's where the the penny really dropped for me, that actually what I was working on was so much bigger than just the festivals. It was bigger than just Edinburgh. It was bigger than Scotland. It was was an attraction card for all of Britain. And um, at the same time, I was doing my master's um, in the US, uh, not in the US, sorry, in Edinburgh. But my thesis and my field study was at metal festivals in the US. And then again, the destination piece, and all just started sort of coming together for me, and a job came up at Visit Britain, so I applied. And um, sort of the rest is history, really. I uh, was managing the international PR team, so doing the same thing I was doing in Edinburgh. I spent a bit of time in New York promoting, obviously, Britain to mm. all of North America. Um, and then I, uh, what after that, I, I was their senior global brand manager, so I actually had the pleasure and the honour of... Um, doing the rebrand for Destination Britain, which was incredible. I say rebrand, actually it was repositioning. Um, but yeah, it was, it was one of the most amazing experiences of my life to promote Britain to 21 different nations and do everything end-to-end from the global customer segmentation and, and, and targeting and positioning to actually then launching the campaign with global partners like National Geographic and Facebook and Vice Media. So... Yeah, just sort of naturally sort of fluked into destination and events just happened to be my pathway in. Um, And then with Top Deck, I suppose, whilst I was promoting a product, the fact of the matter is that people choose the destination first. So we could have had the best tour in Thailand, but actually you've got to get people to get to Thailand first before Mm -hmm. they're ready to pick the tour there. So yeah, I didn't, um, my path was always, I love marketing and I love consumer behavior and brand strategy and marketing strategy. And here I was thinking I was going to be in festivals my whole life. And now I'm um, 
back in Christchurch or back in New Zealand <laughs> promoting Christchurch. And as you said, Cuba Duper and Fringe, I sort of went back via the festival route. I yeah. got back to New Zealand and, you know, we won't talk about the COVID times because they were sad times where offices were wound down and unfortunate, um, unfortunately, you know, mothballing companies. But um, yeah, came back, went back through the festival route and then this job popped up and I couldn't think of anything better than actually helping to reposition and regrow and rebuild this incredible city. Mm. So that was a very long story, but it all sort of interlinks. <laughs> and it does interlink. I mean, especially when yeah. you talk about your childhood, this idea of being going and traveling and that being so formative in your own development, being able to now enable people to do that or encourage people to do that in a different way, uh, it, it must be rewarding as well, you know, just enabling that transformative experience in others as well. It's so rewarding and that's what I realized drew me to both events and tourism because mm. for me those were the things that changed my life. When I'm standing there in a, in a festival with thousands of other people screaming the lyrics to your favorite band, you know, you feel free, you feel open, you meet new people, new horizons, same things when you travel. and. I was just lucky that I got to do it young and I got to realise that I wanted to give that experience to other people. And festivals become a great way of enabling that as well because I don't know how many people from around the country go, you know what, Hockatick is a place I want to go. But when the Wild Food Festival's on, they're like, I want to go for the festival. Oh, look, this place is actually cool. You can go hunting for Punamu. You can go onto the beach. You, it, it enables for other experiences as well. So. Absolutely. It's a great attractor. And a lot of people will travel for ex events or experiences. Again, as the number one, they'll book the flights or they go destination event, book the flights, and then it's our job to get them to do the other stuff around that. Sure. Yeah. Perfect. So uh, we've talked about this a lot offline plenty of times but marketing promoting a city and an identity associated one is not easy or even a place a space whatever um, uh, and the issue is that everyone who lives in a space or place has an opinion of what they feel uh, who they think what they think the place is who they think it they are and what others should get out of this how do you reconcile all this? How do you bring this all together? I mean, this this can't be... I mean, I'm glad I don't have your job. I'm quite, <laughs> quite here to be a supporter of yours, but ultimately it's, it's on you. But um, how do you manage the messiness in all this? Um, well, I think as all marketers know, and anyone studying marketing will have to learn, <laughs> you must be resilient in marketing. I don't think it matters what you market. Everyone has an opinion, right? Yeah. And when it comes to anything that's purpose-led, so... You know, I can compare, say, promoting travel or experiences um, as being purpose-led or, you know, charities or, or anything that really pulls on the heartstrings. You're going to have even more opinions and it's probably going to be a more um, uh, fragile emotional mm. sort of opinion that you're dealing with as well. Um, all very valid. But you're the one that sort of has to stand there and cut through what is someone's opinion versus what the facts are hmm. and again a lot of this stuff is relatively subjective but marketing is it's science and art mixed together and the best way well first like I said you've got to be resilient but the best way to deal with this is to really do the mahi like do the research know your customer or your the, the target you're attracting inside out get that research because that's going to be the difference that empirical evidence and that data is going to be the difference between saying this is how we are going to attract 10,000 people to the city next year in order to sustain the livelihoods of the locals mm. because actually we know that this particular message resonates with that audience versus someone going, well, I don't like that word or that color because it personally annoys me and, you know, falling into the trap of trying to please everyone and actually the end result for a city is that you don't get the economic benefit. Sure. It's 
you know, it's not like a product where it's really quick, fast turnaround and Mm -hmm. test and learn in two weeks and actually change elements. Actually, this could change the future of a city. So you have to be so sure of your empirical evidence and your data whilst obviously taking everyone on the journey Journey. because the journey is really important and not everyone is a marketer, but everyone likes to think they are, (laughs) as we know. Um, But if you can take them on that really great journey to show them where you've been, where you're going and why this is going to be great to your audiences, um, that's that's the hardest part. And um, mood films really help. I know that that's a really tactical thing to say, but... (laughs) I have gotten people over the line with a mood film because if you can emotively show them or give them that feeling, give them the goosebumps of what you're trying to give the people you're attracting, it's going to be a lot easier to get people over the line. And and that sense of pride. And I I mean, I I use this so many times and I I shouldn't. um, But there's that old documentary after the earthquake called When a City Falls. And I have issues with the documentary in general. I think it could have done better. But the trailer is actually really, really good. I think it really shows the heart of the people at the time of the earthquakes, you know, really came together. They were, some were scared, some were more resilient, blah, 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 blah. But it really evokes a mood to the point that when I still show it, if I've got a tour group coming through, I get emotional. I'm like, well, no, this is 12, 12, 13 years ago. Why the hell am I still crying? But those moods are lingering. Those emotions are lingering. But that could be part of the problem. Like, I still hear people calling us the Garden City. And I don't think we've officially used that for, what, five or seven years? Let's give that to Hamilton. <laughs> give it Come to, on, give They've it got to great Hamilton. <laughs> They've only got a garden. We've got so much more. But I mean, exactly. but those things linger. And especially, like you say, those, the, the emotions and the, 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 the identity associated with them for people who are maybe entrenched in that, that that does stay there. And even mm. though, even though you say uh, everyone thinks they're a marketer, sometimes when it comes to s- uh, selling a place, or uh, it is good to have people saying, you should come to my hometown. You should come down. Those They are great marketers. And if they're not bought into this, they're not on the journey, and they say, don't waste your time with ha- um, Christchurch or fill up your mm. car and then move on to Tekapur or something like that, that's not great for us either if the, the residents are not our strongest advocates. Yeah. No, exactly. And advocacy is really important. And I think when you're dealing with branding, like a city or a place, that identity has to be authentic and mm. come from those residents as well. And um, I have to be a little bit careful sometimes being in Christchurch because I wasn't here during the earthquakes. I was actually in Tekapo, but I wasn't, you know, affected the same sure. way that a lot of people were. Um, so I have to treat a very fine line between empath- being empathetic but also moving things along, which again is that it's that resilience piece mm. where you have to say, hey, I know that this still hurts and I know that there are still wounds, but just think of the future opportunity and don't just think about it for you, but think about it for your kids as well. Yeah. I often refer to the idea that, uh, well, not the, the idea, but the fact that there are you know kids here who have no living memory of the earthquake Mm -hmm. so if for no one else's sake but theirs we need to move the the narrative on and showcase that we are the greatest city in the world to live play work invest and do business and if we haven't moved on then how the hell are our kids going to move on as well so it's part of us growing as well um and this kind of brings on to i mean i've heard very senior people in the city say oh, we already have an identity, we already have a brand with a survivor city. I'm like, oh, God, I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> that is not a sellable sort of space to be. Um, I mean, if we were certain that would there would be continuing disasters, it might be a good brand. But um, I really wouldn't want to wouldn't want to bet on that because that would be horrific. What but, a um, great yeah. way to attract the international billionaires, though, is that you build your bunker in Christchurch, we survive. You know, this is a complete tangent. But I sit on this global CX forum, um, so customer experience forum, yeah. and you know we've got some pretty heavy hitters there, like head of CX for like Facebook and stuff. And I'm the only Kiwi in that group. Wow. 
And when I said where I was from, everyone's like, first conference there because you know that the doomsday keyword yep. in Silicon Valley is New Zealand, New Zealand. Because when the world ends, everyone's going to come to New Zealand. So I'm secretly, my hidden agenda in this global forum is, hey, you guys should uh, come to Christchurch. We should have the first, you know, exactly. in-face conference here, in-person conference. <laughs> make, make sure you spend a couple of weeks so you can tour around. I'll Absolutely. take... I'll, <laughs> Bespoke itinerary, I believe, is what you said. Yeah, help bespoke you itineraries. <laughs> I'm not sure if we have any underground bunkers, but I'm sure we can find some. Um, there's a lot written about in the space place marketing, not just about some of those cities that are iconic and you can feel the vibe of it, the spirit of it. Um, and me not being as much of an expert in this space, I'm like, yeah, well, that works for Paris. It works for Milan. It works for Tokyo, which have inherent vibes. I mean, are there places that are similar to Christchurch around the world that that are doing it really well? Do, do you kind of look at Palmston North and go, I wish I could be that? I don't think so. Well, I'm not, but I'm not the expert here. Are there places around the world who, who are really smashing it in this space? Uh, yeah, yes, yes. So I, I read your question a little bit differently, and mm. so I'm going to touch on sort of my initial thoughts about go these big places. Like yeah. the big places like New York and... Paris and Tokyo, London, you know, these are these are mega cities, right? Yeah. We are talking about cities that have a natural gravitation and pull. You know, they're either capital cities or they're financial centres or fashion centres or city of love and they've all got this claim that they stake. But you know, and then you think about but they're playing on this world stage that and I mean this as respectfully as possible, mm. we're not playing on that world stage and we've got to remember that and it's sort of like how I said about um Thailand, you've got to get someone to Thailand first before you can get them to the product. So we've got to think about New Zealand first, then sure. shining um, within the cohort of people who are going to come here. But back, back to the big cities, right? Like, they're, um, uh, what is it, New York, yes. New York is a really, really great example of really good, consistent branding. So mm. I love New York, I heart New York. That actually started in like the mid 70s mm. as a response to the city really suffering financially. Sure. Um, it was supposed to be a really short-lived marketing campaign. There's like a slogan, the logo, and a song, and it just took off. And then, then you've got 9/11 in 2021, and actually that I Heart New York became this big Swindled. symbol yeah. of um, yeah, this big symbol of hope and love and mm. togetherness. And like you've got to think about like all of the crazy things that were going on over the last you know 30, 40, 50 years in New York so much of that is actually totally outside of a marketer's control. Mm. Like you can be, like the New York Economic Development Agency are the ones that own that. They had no idea it was gonna take off like that. They had no idea that someone was gonna take this this brand essentially and, and promote it globally as part of 9-11 or the fact that actually at, that was the counterpoint to some of the violence that was happening in, mm. um, in New York in the 80s, you know, but that's so out of, out of our control, right? Um, but as a counterpoint to that, or I suppose as part of that, one of the problems that we had in Britain when I was working for Visit Britain, and I don't think anyone in Britain's going to hear this, but <laughs> if they do, they won't mind me saying, is that our problem was not that people didn't know who we are. Mm. They knew too much about us. Yep. So it already felt known. And so, like, you know, there's the New York piece where, like, showing that a brain can just take off without your control, or there are things that happen that you can't control. But then we started seeing decline in Britain because people went, it's the Queen, it's the Tower of London, it's, you know, Big Funny Ben. Funny bear hats, yeah. Bear, bear hats, Buckingham hats. Palace, yeah. and, you know, a couple of castles. And, like, we know that. We don't need to see that. We know it already. We've seen it yeah. on the internet, whatever. We don't need to go explore there. So for us, the core proposition, when we did this whole repositioning, working mm. with, um, it was amazing, got to work with MNC Saatchi on it, 
it was the core proposition became the world's most wonderfully unexpected island because we had to show them that there was something different Mm. or the other problem is a lot of people will fly in they go to london for two or three days and then fly out to the rest of europe paris yeah yeah exactly and they sort of do this hop thing they see the big sites they take them off and they go so we actually visually for example it was no key icons anymore Mm -hmm. you know and that's like against that's a goes against no place branding yeah. um, best practice right yeah, yeah. or if you were going with big ben it had to be like a shot from a really unusual angle or place yeah. or like from like a coffee shop that you were promoting next to it that sort of thing and um at the same time the city of london they were realizing that they had too much tourism and too many people in, in zone one so they were doing a piece around only zones two and onwards mm. and so we had to work with them to promote these unexpected areas and these different zones same thing happened in scotland it was um, an absolute kibosh on promoting edinburgh and inverness where loch ness is because people like they they one had too much tourism and two they weren't doing the regional dispersal yeah. which is so much part of the job so whilst these cities are incredible and amazing and somewhat sell themselves, there are actually really interesting brand challenges that come mm. along with having a big city. Um, but back to your question about who's doing it well in a similar way to Christchurch. Now, this could be slightly controversial, but not that I'm comparing us to Belfast, but Belfast sure. um, in Northern Ireland um, have done a really interesting job of what they do where... If you didn't really know much about the troubles in Northern Ireland, you wouldn't know that there is anything going on in Belfast because they've rebuilt the city centre, everything is lovely and it's sort of, they're very, very, you know, like Northern Network problem, that sort of thing. Gateway city, for us it's not really similar to what I saw when I first came here um, for my interview for this job. I see us moving very, very, very past that Mm. um, and very quickly and I think we already have started to move past that, but... I mean, Belfast do a great job of it. They, like I said, you would never know that there were troubles there. Yeah. And that's where we're going to get to. Like, you will never know that there was troubles here, but it will always sit within the souls of the, of people, the people here. Who are there. And I'm, I'm trying to think. So I grew up in the UK in the 80s and early 90s, and the troubles were still troubling at the time. Yeah. Um, and sometimes maybe a bit of time is going to make a difference. We see that with Berlin as another example, you know, when, when the Berlin Wall came down and, and uh, you know, post-World War II, Berlin Wall coming down in, what was that, late 90s as well? Mm-hmm. Um, or, sorry, uh, late 80s, early 90s, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and the, the city now is completely transformed without eradicating the heart of what was happening at the yes. time. And I think it's that sensitive balance between the two to make sure people understand this was part of us, but this is not who we are, if that makes yeah. sense. It's, it's interesting because I said that in my job interview as well. It was, it was Belfast and Berlin that I, hmm. you know, and obviously what's happened there is a much larger scale, but obviously to the people of Christchurch, the, the tragedies that have happened here have been horrific as well. And so it's, you know, you, you take that, that essence of who the people are intergenerationally and sort of both the, 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 the struggles, but also the advancement and the amazing, you know, all the positive sides of everything here. And you've got to bake that into the future and then go, it's not just who we bring our past with us, and then making it the band for generation. So I'm trying to think when it was. I think I was in New Orleans maybe about five or six years ago. So still in a very tradition, transitional phase for us in Christchurch. And mm. we hadn't had the terrace up. Cashel Mall was still trying its best sort of thing. It was still yeah. doing. Uh, and so seeing somewhere like New Orleans where they had made a conscious effort to say, French Quarter, we are going to rebuild and pretend nothing happened. 
and then we'll work on the other parts later. So as a tourist, I can go, this place is flipping amazing. You would never know Katrina had ripped through this. And I'm like, well, actually, that doesn't feel right either. You yeah. know, where's, where's the authenticity in this? Are I we feel, covering it up? I felt exactly the same when I went to New Orleans. Yeah. Uh, and at the same time, when you could walk into any bar in the French Quarter at 2 a.m. on a Thursday afternoon and hear something world-class as far as music goes, that's amazing. But I think that's part of the history and heritage that they had that they wanted to preserve, but it felt felt very odd still being in that space. Maybe that's because I'd come from a city that had felt a disaster, and I'm like, but where's the where's the, the other part of it? Where's, where's that? I think that's what I'm um, really enjoying about my time at, mm. uh, at Christchurch NZ is that... Um, in, in my past roles with destination marketing, it's been purely visitor economy based. Mm. Whereas actually I'm really excited that I get to work across the full spectrum of economic development. And so as we reposition the city, or as we get to this place um, where we you know, sort of land on who we are as Christchurch, you know, um, you're saying about there's lots of different opinions. Well, actually, you can you can take a bit of a what I would call a global approach. Is if you're doing international marketing and have your one core proposition and then your different mm. um, streams for markets. Well, you can do that here and go. Let's look at the actual core proposition. Who is Christchurch? Who are we? What do we talk to our residents about? Which is ultimately where that identity comes from. Then how do we adapt that for our visitors? How do we adapt that for our business and yeah. investment? But not losing that true core nature and identity of who we are as a city yeah. but just telling the right stories for the right audiences and this is why i think your title is so important as well it's not gm of marketing it's gm of marketing brand and comms so the comms has to happen but if it's just marketing maybe you forget about what the brand is what the identity is what the heart is and so when all three are under your sort of mantle then it becomes really important as going forward um i, I read on one of your profiles that you wanted to you see Christchurch is being almost like the most livable city in the, in the country. I wondered if you wanted to take a couple of seconds to explain what you think livable is. I mean, we've talked about this in the past in that you want it to be sexy enough that people get attracted to come here, but you don't want the identity to be uh, so out there that people don't believe you or whatever else it yeah. might be. Livable's not the most sexiest thing, but at the same time, when house prices are going mad around Auckland and Wellington, livable is extremely attractive to a young professional. <laughs> Yeah, and if I mean that's what you're thinking about. Yeah, it. and like maybe, maybe, maybe that is my my stage in life as well, where I'm thinking, you know, I'm a young professional, and I want I want to be able to go out and dance, yeah, and go see some music on the terrace and have some cocktails and have like one of the best sh- lamb shoulders I've ever had in my life. Thank you, Amazonita. Um, you know, but then I also want to be able to go to the beach and chill yeah. out, and I want to be able to afford to buy a house and get a dog. But I also want to have a world class career and. Sure that is actually allowed or not allowed sorry it's possible it's enabled even it's it's enabled yes and i think okay so if you're a student you can have all those things but a world-class education sure um but then you know maybe you're not looking for world-class and actually maybe you just want to live the kiwi dream and that kiwi dream is being able to afford to buy a house have Mm. a good job but have work-life balance and coming from living in Europe for so long and working in Europe for so long, I genuinely forgot what that was. <laughs> <laughs> and the great thing about, about Christchurch is, you know, you've got an airport there. If you want to go, like you've got the city, right? Yeah. You can have the city lifestyle. You've got the beach lifestyle. You've got the mountains lifestyle. You can go skiing and surfing in the same day. But if you wanted to go somewhere, I mean, look, borders are closed right now, but when the borders are open, I can hop over to Aussie real quick, just yep. like that. No sweat. I can travel. I can do everything. I can... I don't know, there's, um, other than the actual physical distance between me and the rest of the world, it doesn't feel like you've got that. You've got everything you could want. I was talking to a colleague today. He's from Milan. 
and he he, he says he fully admit uh, fully misses some aspects of Europe. Just being able to within an hour fly to a completely different culture, mm. but he also loves New Zealand because he's close enough but far enough as well. He he has that opportunity to go. Actually, I'm okay being three hours away from the next island, and potentially, you know, 14 hours away from Singapore. You know, because that that is helpful as well in some circumstances. Yeah, I mean, look, the dream for me is like half the time in New Zealand, half the time in Europe. But I'd like, but being in New Zealand or being in Christchurch allows me to sort of make that decision where it's a lot harder to do it the other way around. For sure, you know, for sure. very difficult. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think it makes sense. So I like to finish each of the discussions I have with this question about. What gives you hope for the future? So um, this is a this is a tough gig you've got. Like I said, I'm glad I don't have your job. But is there something that makes you hopeful for the future, whether it's personally, professionally? What is the, what is what does the future hold for you, or what gets you excited? Uh, the end of the pandemic. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, I'll look into my crystal ball for that one. Um, no, so I, I sort of touched on it before. Actually, I was I was thinking about this this question a lot because in the past if you'd asked me if you'd like any time for the pandemic what makes you hope for the future I'd list off about 15 different festivals that I was going to or I'd lift off about four or five different like companies that I was going to support or consult yeah. with or you know it was this whole like the world is my oyster and I'm going to go you know do all this thing very individualistic very sort of hedonist mm. you know traveling the world yo pro sort of thing and actually since I've come to Christchurch um some of my core values have come back to the surface where again you know you're living in Europe it's a very different lifestyle and um, really refocusing and almost repositioning well not repositioning but like shifting my focus back to like the really core important things in life now that I'm back here things do go at a slower pace but actually Mm. you can have the hectic lifestyle if you want sure but then realizing that actually what I'm most interested in or most keen to do is that purpose-led stuff, right? So mm. all of my jobs have always been about showcasing or giving something to other people so that they can like expand their horizons or they can fulfill their dreams and their hopes and whatever. And you know, I used to mentor a lot in in, um, in London as well. And so what I'm really excited about, um, both personally and professionally, is that in this job. All of our key agencies and our key strategies are all fundamentally committed to intergenerational well-being. Mm. And I know that sounds like a random thing to be passionate about, but I think I've um, experienced in my life too many situations or, or when you're like looking at politics or people, the things that people argue about, people are concerned like from a societal perspective about what affects them currently at that point in time. Mm. But I'm in what is a local government structure that is committed to going, look, life is really good for a certain number of people within a certain sort of socioeconomic um, tier or class and, you know, age group. But how do we make sure that actually everything we're doing from here on in helps everyone and that we get to pass on great things to our children, but we also don't leave, you know, the elderly behind or Mm -hmm. that actually, you know... um, everything is done truly in partnership with mana whenua to make sure that our most vulnerable people are actually looked after on the way um, but for me it's very much about making sure that what we're doing now is actually leaving Christchurch better for the next generation and that will be the marker of success for me whereas in the past it would have been an award for a campaign or you know something like that whereas now I'm like no if I like when I move on to another job or whatever if I know that what I've done is positively going to impact 
the next generation or those people coming behind me then that will be the marker of success and I genuinely believe <laughs> it sounds like I'm over inflating marketing but I genuinely believe that the work we're doing can have that effect yeah and I mean I'm reflecting on some of the the results out of the greater Christchurch partnership work that was mm. done when especially working with young people and and it was almost heartbreaking when I was looking at the data where the number one thing a lot of our young people around Atahi were asking for is in, in 30 years time they want a safe city where they feel safe I'm like holy shit is that is that the bar you just want to feel safe but at the same time a lot of people uh, kind of reflected on safe as not being just I want to feel safe physically but mm. I want to be safe in my identity I want to be safe financially mm. I want to be in a place where I can be me and, and that's super important to a lot of people but it almost feels out of touch for some people especially young people when stuff seems to be breaking over here the earth is dying and people are spending money that they're going to have to pay for this I've been in enough meetings where the words intergenerational debt get used a lot. Yeah. And, and I kind of poke my younger colleagues going, that's you, that is, you're going to have to pay for that one sort of thing. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but, but this is the only way that some people today are seeing that future. But So to take that lens of intergenerational well-being, that, that focus, mm. is, is, gives a lot of hope that thinks beyond you and your role, thinks beyond. Yeah, and I think that sort of comes back to it as well when you think about dealing with lots of conflicting opinions and it's about doing what's right and so I might kind of go wow this is going to be an amazing campaign it's going to be so cool and I'm going to look awesome it's going to be great on my CV or I can go, actually the right thing to do is this one here yeah or you know and also being able to say to someone actually I know that politically this is going to make you look better but this is the right thing to do and that's hard and then that, that's extremely hard especially when it's nice to have a cabinet of trophies. And I didn't ask this one in advance, so you can tell me, you can't have this on, on, on tape if you want, but <laughs> um, what is your opinion of some of those trophies? Because you see campaigns that sometimes win those trophies and you kind of look at them and go, I hadn't even heard of that campaign or something. It seems like friends giving their friends or it, very internal, while someone who's a resident or something may not have seen, seen it as much. I, I, I guess there, there's a variety yeah. of them. I mean, look, I can't comment on any that have come through our agency because I haven't been here long enough to sort of see if we've won anything. I think we're nominated for something. But um, just generally speaking, you know, there are a lot of awards out there and they seem to get more and more every year because creating an award um, for the organisation that's creating the award, that's a revenue generator. <laughs> so, like, there's a lot of awards out there. I'm quite cynical about awards, but mm -hmm. I'm also a PR person from way back. Sure. And so... I, I feel like it gives you social license yep. as an organization. It, you know, it, it, not, not, I'm not talking about Christchurch NZ, just generally, like if you're a yeah. marketer or you're a marketing agency, if you have awards, it shows that you're, someone else thinks that you're good at your job, which means you're more likely to get more work, right? Sure. And so you just have to balance the vanity metrics yeah. <laughs> with the quality with metrics, the quality metrics. <laughs> which is the same with the marketing campaign, right? There's the vanity metrics that you send to the board and you go, yeah. hey, we had 100,000, this, that, and the other. But actually, you know, the true quality metric is, did someone take the action you wanted them to? Yeah. So you have to look at it the same way, I guess. And some, sometimes it's much easier to say, here are the ones that are very tangible, real, externally validated. We may not have hit our targets over here, and we were hoping to, but that's okay. This is there, but it has to be the balance between the two as well. Yeah, I, I always found in my in my younger days when I was trying to get something really, really crazy over the line is to have a nice little award to distract <laughs> people with over here, and then like go do the do the, the crazy work, one, anyway. and then that would come out and they'd be like, oh yeah, yeah, you could do whatever you want. You you keep winning us awards, it's fun. <laughs> Brilliant. And this is and, and look, I get in trouble with accountants all the time because it's really hard to put an ROI on 
marketing. Totally. You know, how, how do you how do you say, well, I spent the budget and this is how much return I had, but having an award helps to alleviate some of that as well. I'm sure. Absolutely, and especially in organisations where you can't attribute. So. Yep. Take, take my work with Top Deck, it was really easy to turn around and go, I can directly attribute this marketing campaign to a 5% uplift in sales. Yeah, yeah. Simple. When you're doing destination marketing or economic development, it's almost impossible. And it's not to say that, you know, we're saying, oh, we can't do it as Christchurch and Z. Like, no one has figured this one out yet because mm. it would require actual, you know, phone tracking. It would require beacon technology. And people are testing that stuff out now, but it's still going, how do you go that person? And also, if you're traveling, it, like anything like visitor economy, that could be one, to, one month to two years mm. of, you know, customer journey (laughs) and life cycle like it's crazy because someone who's living in um new zealand say someone who's living in christchurch seeing an ad for britain you know they might go yeah cool not now but i'm going to save up for that in two years time but you know that your your campaign helped that but you can't prove that you can't prove that you it's it's that iterative process and i guess the closest you can try to do with metricizing this without tracking people like you say is when you're looking at social media feeds and saying this person has made the decision to come here but again whether you saw a direct result as a campaign yeah. that you put in six months ago or whatever. Exactly. It's, it's so do. difficult. But, um, I mean, generally speaking, if, you're, if your visitor numbers are going up, yeah. you can claim it. <laughs> <laughs> That's all us. It's not because Dunedin is not as attractive anymore or something like that. That's so cool to hear your thoughts on this. Again, someone who's both internationally traveled, intelligent, experienced, and then new in the role. It's great to see your vision in, in this and can't wait to see what comes of it and how it develops in the future. So, Anna, really appreciate you taking the time to quarter it all with me. Really appreciate what you're doing for the city and best of luck for the future. Thank you. It's been great to share marketing with someone. <laughs>